if I handed you two technologies in, in the year 1400, uh, in the year 1200, long before either of these technologies existed, and I said, I could give you this giant device that would allow you to print paper books, or I'll give you this device called the internet, where you can do the same thing, but deliver that content globally in a fraction of a second, you'd say, well, why would I take the printing press when I could take this thing that does the same thing and delivers that content to anyone in the globe in a fraction of a second? That was Chris Martin. I'm Adam Ravenhill, and you're listening to the Consider the Ravens podcast. Thank you so much for being with us today. Today, we are talking about social media, or as Chris calls it, the social internet. We believe that literature bolsters discipleship in the local church, but with information being harvested and consumed mostly online nowadays, how do we view that and how do we work out how to discern and treat this information wisely? Chris Martin has written on social media extensively through his newsletter and his new book, Terms of Service. Without further ado, I've been writing on the internet since I was in eighth grade, unfortunately, uh, but I've been doing a good bit of writing for a long time. And, uh, and lately in the last mm, five years or so, I've started to really turn toward uh, focusing on the social internet and how um, our current iteration of the internet, which is often called web 2.0 uh, affects us maybe in ways we don't often realize. And, and I'm a Christian um, and I write from a Christian worldview. And I think that's pretty clear, but I, I want, to do everything I can to write in such a way uh, that it would be helpful to Christians or non-Christians alike. And sometimes um, I'll write things that are more specifically for believers. And it's like, hey, let's have a little family talk here kind of discussion where uh, we need to talk specifically about how our faith is uh, impacted by the social internet and our relationship with it. But a lot of times, like I think, I think much of what's, what I wrote in terms of service, the book, which is also the name of my newsletter, but um, what I wrote in the book, which comes out in February of 22, um, uh, is is applicable to to people whether or not they um, would believe in Jesus Christ and, and, and trust in Him for salvation. Um, because I think it's just affecting us in so many social ways and psychological ways. And I'm, I'm not, I have no uh, credentials to be like diagnosing people with psychological disorders or anything like that. But but I am if I can toot, toot my own horn a little bit, I'm pretty good at like reading and synthesizing information and writing from people who are qualified to write about such things. And, and I've done a lot of time doing that. I spent a lot of time doing that. And I'm much of what I write is just, is not, you know, there are plenty of people who write good theology of social media kind of content who are very interested in, um, in talking about here's what here's what scripture says about how we should engage on social media and i think that's very valuable and there are a handful of people who do that well and i do that a little bit but much of what i'm writing both in the newsletter and in the book are more kind of broad i suppose you could say of, of let's just stop scrolling for a second and zoom out from our lives if we could kind of go third person mode in our lives for a second and and look over our own shoulders and, and watch us move about our days what would we observe that scrolling constantly um, is doing to us? Uh, I'm, I'm, there is reason to be concerned with what we are consuming, but what I'm as interested in is what consuming is doing to us. 
I'm, I'm, you know, I don't get up, I don't get caught up in a lot of conversations about, oh, well, what about like, we shouldn't be watching these videos or we shouldn't be reading this content though. Again, those are some worthy discussions. I'm as interested in kind of the general movement of what, what is this consumption of content at all times doing to us as people? Um, what is the mass collection of user data doing? What are the implications of that on, on us? So I'm, I'm really just trying to look at big picture questions and, and things like that. So. Yeah. Um, you know, given that I've been doing, I've been on the internet for a long time, longer than most people my age have been. Like my dad worked for IBM, which if you don't know what IBM, I mean, it's a huge global computer company. Um, he worked for IBM from home most of my life, uh, my young life. Like in 1993, he was working from home. In fact, a local newspaper like did a story on the fact that he was working from home because it was like amazing that he could work from home in 1993. Uh, and because it, it was kind of, it was definitely revolutionary then uh, no zoom back then they were, they were amazed that he had two phone lines in his house, one for work and one for the family. But, um, but like, so I was on the computer and tinkering with the internet in like 1995, you know, I was five years old um, for four or five years old. And so I was like, learning that kind of thing. So I've always just been really, when I was in high school, I, I wrote for the school paper and like I had a tech column and, and like I was writing a lot. Like I got on, I remember creating my Twitter account in my high school journalism class when I was a, when I was a junior in high school. And so like, I've just always really been interested in this stuff. I used to want to go work for like Google, Facebook. Like when I was in high school, I, I wanted to do computer science and go out and work for one of those big companies. And I eventually didn't for some good reasons, I think. Um, but, uh, but then really to kind of where we are today to fast forward um, a few years ago, I read amusing ourselves to death for the first time. I want to say it was 2016 and that's a book by Neil Postman written in 1985. He was a media professor at New York university um, died in 2003, right around the turn of the millennium. Um, and in amusing ourselves to death without summarizing the whole book, really what Postman is saying is that we are amusing ourselves to death. And he focuses a lot on the revolutionary invention of the television, uh, because in 1985, that's what was revolutionizing things. And when I read that book for the first time a few years ago, five or six years ago now, I was amazed by how relevant it was to today um, and how I think it's, it's even more relevant today than it was then. And, and perhaps the most striking image in that book is where he says, you know, all of us are, he, he, he kind of teases this in the intro, and then I think he has a whole chapter on it toward the end. All of, many of us are very concerned about an Orwellian future, a 1984 future where uh, the government oppresses us by putting televisions in our home with cameras on them and makes us watch propaganda every night at seven o'clock or whatever, you know, and, and we have this idea that the the government is going to oppress us through technology. And that's, that's one view of a dystopian future. Um, and I, again, I'm not dismissing that, but I think that is a little less on the fore and a little less realistic than 
um, Aldous Huxley's vision of a dystopian future in Brave New World. And this is the, yeah, and this and this is what and this is what Postman is kind of contrasting the two. He basically says, in paraphrasing him, everyone's concerned about an, or- an Orwellian dystopia future, dystopian future. But he was like, I think we're honestly much closer to a Huxleyan dystopian future where it's not what what we hate that will be our demise. That would be Orwell, but it's what we love that will be our demise. Which that that's Huxley, um, and so we are going to amuse ourselves to death. I think <clears throat> it's this sort of modern psychological hedonism where it's just like um, we're never going to be fed and our, our our fancies and our pleasures and our feelings of, of good feelings are never going to be satiated enough. And I, I fear um, that that's what we're headed towards. So anyway, that's really what set me on this path in the last four or five years of focusing a lot of my writing in this space. Um, and I, I kind of thought not to say that I think I am this person, but I, when I read Amusing Ourselves to Death, I said, it'd be really cool if we had a 21st century Neil Postman writing from a Christian perspective. And when I thought it'd be really cool for that kind of person to exist, I was like, well, why can't I try to be like that? And that's like, if I would describe what I'm doing, what I try to do in a sentence, it's I'm trying to be a 21st century Neil Postman from a Christian perspective. So anyway, that's, that's a little bit of where I'm at and why, why I'm doing what I'm doing here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's a, um, that is a pretty stark statement that I make and I stand behind it. Um, and, and I'll explain why. Um, so I think it would be foolish to say that uh, the social internet or the internet in general is, is like stands alone as the most important innovation in human history, because obviously you needed, you needed other technologies for the internet to happen. Right. So like, the heart, the harnessing, we, we didn't invent electricity. It's a naturally occurring phenomenon, but like the, the harnessing of electricity is an, a necessary invention for the internet. So in, in some ways, like, you know, the harnessing of electricity is really the most, uh, you know, if you're going to say the internet's the most important, well, really the harnessing of electricity is really the most important invention. Okay. Yeah. Granted, like there are certain like foundational technologies. And I would say the same with the printing press. A lot of people um, who I, when, when I have this conversation, I'm like, well, the printing press, like Protestant Reformation. I'm like, oh, buddy, if you think the Protestant Reformation is like the biggest social, like global event to have happened in human history because of technology or that will happen in human history because of technology, like, look, I'm, I'm sitting here as an American evangelical in the 21st century, and I'm grateful for the Protestant Reformation. But like, Frankly, I think the internet has already caused some events that could rival that and and certainly will lead to events that will that will leave that will make the Protestant Reformation seem like small potatoes in the future. Um, and like I write in the book, and this is another kind of shocking statement, like the internet 
will be central to whatever the next major global conflict is that could lead to the demise of our species. Like it will be central in that, in whatever that means um, in World War III or what, however you view that, like something like that, some global conflict is eventually going to happen. Um, and the internet will be central in that, um, I think. And so like, uh, anyway, I think the printing press is hugely important. I'm, just, I'm obviously grateful for it. Here's why the internet, to put it, to put a point on it, uh, here's why the internet's more important or, or more impactful than the printing press. Um, it does everything the printing press does, but delivers the materials of the printing press at light speed. And I mean, I'm not using that figuratively. Like fiber optic cables were delivered. Were, it's doing the printing press. It's doing everything the printing press did. Like the printing press and the internet, you can create content in the same exact way. Um, but the printing press, disseminating what was printed on the printing press was actually quite difficult. And to this day, it's quite difficult. It's much easier to deliver an ebook than it is to deliver a physical book, much cheaper. Um, not saying that like ebooks are, are better. That's not what I'm trying to say, but I'm just saying like, if you're looking at, would you, if I handed you two technologies in, in the year 1400, uh, in the year 1200, long before either of these technologies existed, and I said, I could give you this giant device that would allow you to print paper books, or I'll give you this device called the internet, where you can do the same thing, but deliver that content globally in a fraction of a second, you'd say, well, why would I take the printing press when I could take this thing that does the same thing and delivers that content to anyone in the globe in a fraction of a second? Um, I, that's why I, I really don't think there's much competition. Uh, and I, I, think the, um, I think the internet's just so young that we have yet to see the, the Protestant Reformation moment uh, that maybe, you know, people often say, well, the printing press led to the Protestant Reformation. Well, yeah, um, that's true. But I think the internet will lead to far more consequential global events, some of which could be really good. And I think some of which will certainly not be really good. I mean, I mean, Twitter, Twitter itself, one of the least influential social media platforms, I, a lot of people don't like to think that, but like, like 20% of Americans are on Twitter, like it's not that influential. It led to the overthrow of like Egypt, like the Arab Spring um, was was initiated via Twitter, like Twitter was was a major factor in the Arab Spring um, from a number of years ago. And so I, I think we should we should understand that the Internet is much more in the social Internet and the future of the Internet and Web3 um, is is much more consequential than really any individual technology we've seen.
Yeah. The uh, one of the more foolish things I hear said about social media and the social Internet, which I only say that because I once believed this. So I'm not trying to call anybody out. Um, I once thought this way until just the last couple of years is uh, the social Internet is a neutral tool. Um, I I think when someone says that it all I hear is I don't understand how the Internet works. And that might sound mean, but like surely like that, if if you think the social Internet is neutral, like the only things in life in the world that are neutral tools are things that we would like discover in nature that we've never had a hand in creating. And even that, because nature itself is fallen, I would argue maybe aren't neutral tools, but like like fire, like fire is a neutral tool right? Like you can use fire to cook food. You can use fire to destroy a house. Fire is not, there's nothing baked into the technology of fire, if you will, that lends it more toward destruction or creation. Um, It's not, there's not this bent toward destruction or this bent toward building up. It could really kind of equally be used for good or for ill just depending on who uses it. Um, We did not discover the social internet like we discovered fire. Uh, We did not discover the social internet in as some like naturally occurring resource in a cave somewhere and be like, whoa, look at this. Look at this thing we found. It can be used for good or it can be used for evil. Um, The social internet was created by sinful human beings looking to make money and connect the world at the same time. Um, And to believe that the internet is social and that the, or sorry, that the social internet is neutral is to totally ignore the incentives at the core of the social internet. So like just a couple of examples, um, one about how we use it and one about how the platform, how, it, how a particular platform is, is oriented. So, and they kind of relate. So Facebook, um, is not, let's take Facebook as an example, because they're the easiest one. They're the most popular social media platform in the world. And they're the easiest example for for this. So the Facebook newsfeed is not chronological. It's loosely chronological in that you're more likely to see something that was posted yesterday than a month ago. But it's not like, you know, the earliest Twitter feed, which was hard chronological. You see the most recent tweet, the second most recent tweet, the third most recent tweet. You don't, that, like, that's not how Facebook works. Facebook is, um, Facebook is a feed that's curated by Facebook um, based on a few factors, a number of factors, uh, and, it's, and it's undergirded by an algorithm or multiple algorithms, which are just mathematical equations that take countless variables into effect and deliver you content in your feed that Facebook believes you will find interesting. So Facebook's goal is to make money and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I'm not saying that's bad, but like that's Facebook's goal is to make money. The way they make money is by keeping people on their platform and selling ads. And the way they sell the most ads at the highest rates is by keeping as many people on their platform for as long as they possibly can. If nobody used Facebook or people use Facebook for five minutes a week, their ads would have to be a lot cheaper because advertisers would not find it worthy to pay a a dollar per click or whatever, you know? Um, So Facebook is incentivized to do whatever it 
has to do to keep you and I on the platform as long as possible. That's how their business works. Facebook is not incentivized for civic public discourse because that does not lead. Yeah. But here's the thing. Unfortunately, if civic public discourse led to more revenue, they would be doing that. They would do everything they can to make that happen. But human nature, our sinful human nature, when we get on Facebook, I'm talking in mass, what keeps us on Facebook is conflict, not civic public discourse. And Facebook recognizes that. Um, and they say the mo a lot of engagement, more engagement comes around conflict than any other kind of interaction. So we're going to, in that algorithm, in that feed where Facebook is deciding what to float to the top, we're going to float to the top the content that has the most engagement. If you ask any marketer, what's the most important metric on social media, followers, engagement, whatever, reach, engagement is number one. Engagement is the most strong indicator of interest and buying power and all that. So Facebook is going to float to the top of your newsfeed the content that has the most engagement, um, generally speaking. And most often, the content that has the most engagement is content that is antagonistic in nature. Um, and Facebook does this because they know that that's how you're more likely to stay on the platform. And that's how they continue to make the most money. So it's not like, what I'm saying is, is you know, people often complain about Facebook or Twitter, any, any of these platforms and say, um, well, people just like to go on there and fight. And I agree that we are to blame in part, but we're not, the, we have help. Like, it's like there are four different roads you can walk when you get on Facebook. You can like go be entertained or you can go be encouraged or you can go have a deep conversation or you can go fight. And it's like Facebook has made, Facebook has lined the road to go fight with gold and dropped some candy along and said, hey, 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 come come this way. Isn't this way much more fun and interesting? Like the platform is slanted toward conflict because it helps with revenue. Um, and the Facebook papers that were released in October of 2021 really bring this to the fore. Um, and, and a lot of people like me for a long time said, I think that, I think Facebook is incentivizing conflict. Like I really think they're incentivizing conflict, but we really had no evidence of that. And the Facebook papers just blew those doors wide open and made it very clear that they've been incentivizing conflict and discord for some time in order to make as much revenue as possible. So after hearing all of that, like if you understand how that platforms are incentivized to rank content for the sake of revenue rather than for the sake of neutrality in public discourse, it becomes very difficult to see social media as a neutral tool. And when you look at people fighting on Facebook or wherever, I, I start to have a little bit more compassion for them because in my view, they just got duped by their feeds. They didn't necessarily come looking for a fight. They were kind of baited likely into wanting to fight in whatever comment section they're fighting in. Yeah.
Right. Yeah. And, and it's like, that's right. And it's like the bar makes money based on how long people stay around. And they've realized, oh, people stick around longer if they're attending the boxing match or even participating in the boxing match. So we're going to kind of do whatever we can to, yeah, we offer these other things, but we're going to go point them toward the boxing match because the longer they stay, the more money we make. So, um, yeah, that's like, if you, I think, and that's like, that's so much of a lot of my writing is simply just trying to educate people on this stuff. Because I think if you come to social media, the social internet and say it's a neutral platform, it's not like I think you're willfully wrong. I think you maybe just don't understand the entire conversation we just had. Like I think a lot of people just don't get that these platforms incentivize different kinds of content and incentivize different kinds of action, most of which are not positive in nature. Um, and, and that I think it's not a, a blank slate that I think the, the finger is on the scale toward conflict and discord rather than encouragement and building one another up. Sure. Right.
Yeah. Yeah. The, um, what's funny, I'm, I'm contracted to write a second book that I'm in the middle of writing. Um, that, that will, yeah, that, uh, will come out with Moody Publishers in, uh, 2023, uh, probably February, 2023. So like a year after terms is coming out here in, in February. Um, and this, this second book is, uh, straight at this question, um, which is, uh, the, the book is tentatively titled the wolf in your pocket, uh, which, um, I don't know if it'll stick or not. Drew, my buddy, Drew, my editor, and I will have to discuss it. I don't, I was like, I just need to title this file something. So let's just come up with something, but um, we might need to make it something a bit more clear because it can be kind of ambiguous. Um, but, but yeah, the whole point, yeah, the whole, like to your point about how like people changing throughout and the pandemic, I mean, I've talked to a handful of past, a, a good number, I want to say between one and two dozen pastors in the last six months, um, just asking them, like, how do you see social media impacting your churches? Um, and their answers are largely negative. I'm sure you can guess. Now they have said it's been helpful for them to stay connected during lockdown periods or whatever. Um, so they're not, they're not saying it's all doom and gloom. However, they, um, most of them have said things like, man, this guy, you know, Jim never used to be a jerk, but now, man, he's just coming at me about all kinds of stuff. And it's like the conflict culture that thrives on the internet is almost really starting to spill over into a lot of churches. Um, not that there hasn't been conflict in churches, but I, pastors that I've spoken with have said uh, it's at a much higher clip than it's ever been before. Um, and so individual digital autonomy, I think what I generally mean by that is, um, you know, make, not being enslaved to your social media platform of choice, really your phones generally, but, um, and really being able to detach yourself, kind of zoom out that zoom out idea that I've communicated of like, how is this affecting me? Let's, let's like detach myself. Let's not be ruled by these platforms. A big message of terms coming out in February is that these tools were created to serve us, but we've really come to serve these tools. Um, and we've really come to, um, be enslaved in a lot of ways to these tools, even though they were ostensibly created to help make our lives easier. They've made our lives harder in a lot of ways. Um, and so I really think kind of, you know, separating ourselves from that and gaining some independence from those platforms and not having dependence on them is really important. Um, and I think to answer the second part of your question on discipling um, amid this, that's what the entire next book is about. So I can't, I, I it would, it would take me Two, we could have an entire, we will probably one day have an entire podcast about this exact question because there's so much. But generally what I would say is um, pastors are really grappling with the fact that their influence and authority among their people is at an all-time low. Um, I've heard this a lot from pastors in the past about like, people come and listen to me preach on a Sunday for an hour and maybe they go to small group for an hour during the week, but then they're watching cable news eight, you know, six hours a day throughout the week. How could I ever compete with that influence? The same thing is true with social media. Just it's way more frequent and comp many more people are, are, are uh, enslaved by social media than are enslaved by cable news these days is how I would put it. So it's a much more prevalent, problem, but it's a similar one to what I heard a lot of pastors reckoning with back in the early 2000s um, when cable news really started to explode. And so um, 
what I would say is the general advice or, or like bit that really is woven through that whole next book is it's a long-term time in process to, for a pastor, for church leaders, for really anyone who's in charge of discipling other people, whether it's even a parent, um, you're not going to solve a discipleship crisis caused by social media with a sermon series about why social media is bad. You're not going to solve like social media is warping our understanding of community and friendship, I think. And you're not going to solve that problem as a pastor with a sermon series on community. Um, I think the way you solve a lot of the problems, spiritual problems that pastors are seeing in churches that I think are directly attributable to our relationship with the social internet, at least in large part, anxiety, a warped understanding of beauty and sexuality, a misunderstanding of what, uh, like a, a over-prioritization of entertainment, which we've already talked about a little bit, but like pastors feel like the need to be entertainers more than they ever have. And that's because people have been amusing themselves to death. Um, and so I think the the solution to a lot of those problems if, if I could like blanket give one solution is long haul person to person boots on the ground discipleship practices, like meeting with people for coffee regularly, reading your Bible regularly, um, like just really things that are not like revolutionary or new. But I think what a lot of pastors sometimes misunderstand is that, that they think that they can solve a problem like this with like content with preaching with and look i'm not going to say the holy spirit can't do things like that I, all of that stuff is very important um but i think you're generally advised not to fight fire with fire but i think when it comes to wrestling people's souls away from the social internet the fire is time. That's the reason their souls are bound up in the social internet to begin with, because people are spending roughly two and a half hours a day on social media. On average, you have to fight time with time. Like the only way a pastor or a church leader is going to wrestle their parishioners souls away from the social internet is by spending a lot more time with them than two hours a week. I think that's the only answer. Right. That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think, I think the, like a sermon series, like, like on community, like if you're like, man, my people are just like making friends online all the time. They're not spending time in person, a sermon series on community, which I kind of just like jokingly dismissed it. That can be great kindling to get the fire going. Like, I think that it, it can really like doing a sermon series on whatever issue you see arising in your church because maybe of the social internet's impact. I think that's a great 
starting point, launching point for exactly the reason you just described. It kind of brings to the fore, hey, this is a problem. And then it must be followed by significant time in community and spending time talking with one another. And you just really, no one, no one even with a, a message as powerful as the gospel, I don't think that two hours a week will ever compete with two and a half hours a day. I just like, you need to be spent like encouraging people. And I'm not saying like pastors need to spend time with everybody. It's you need to encourage people within your church to be spending time with each other. And, you know, that's just one example, but, but yeah, I think what you said is a really good point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's wonderful <laughs> Oh, is it? Wonderful.
No, no, I get it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, the hope I have to share is that social media isn't all bad. Um, I think we've talked a lot about the negative effects, the negative bents of social media. And I think with good reason, because the reason it's important to talk about those things explicitly is because it's easy for us to just adopt new technologies or forms of media because they scratch an itch we have. They, they make us um, entertained or feel good. And we, we just, we don't question them the way we should. So I do think this conversation we've had that might feel sad or, or uh, discouraging. Um, we should, we don't have those kinds of conversations enough. So I think it's sometimes important to have those. However, um, if you're listening to this podcast episode, you may think that like, I hate social media and think it's all bad. I don't um, I'm, I'm on it for a reason. Like if I thought it was all bad and completely unredemptive, but I still maintained all the social media presence that I do, I am a, I would be a hypocrite. Um, because I, I don't, I don't think it's all bad. Um, I just think that a blind embrace of it is bad, and that we should be a little bit more caught. Like we should treat social media the way we would treat a new acquaintance that we don't totally trust. Like maybe you don't let them babysit your kids, but you, um, and I suppose that could be more literal social media babysitting kids. Um, but you, uh, you don't, you know, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't invite this new social media stranger into your home uh, for dinner necessarily, but you might have a nice conversation with them on your front porch or something like that. So I just think we, I think we should have a more careful relationship, but I think the the word of hope I would, I would have is um, without social media, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Um, and, and I think, I think there are so many fun relationships and friendships that have for me have been initiated on social media um and depending on geographical context may still live 50 percent, 80 percent on social media um but you know once or twice a year when i go off to a conference or visit a city i'll be able to get coffee with a friend that i first met on twitter or something like that and i think that's really sweet i think that's really rich again i always start thinking about like well what do we need to be careful of we need to be careful of like that those relationships don't trump our in-person relationships. Um, but, but I do think that um, it's important for us to recognize that there is value here, that the connection that you, that you guys and I get to make here, it's been so fun getting to hang out and talk with you. I wish, I wish I could hop on a plane and come over to Brighton and visit you guys. It'd be so fun. Um, um, or, or, or you guys vice versa. Like I, I love that the internet, the social internet has brought, 
people like us together in ways that we simply would have never really had the means to previously. And I think that's really cool. That's what, that, that's what keeps bringing me back is I get to meet so many fascinating people and interact with so many fascinating people and see how God is working through so many great people all around the world um, in ways that I simply never would have before. And so I think if we put some guardrails, if we, if we have a sober mind about social media and, and treat it with a measure of caution, um, rather than just some new app comes out and you just wholly embrace it and use it with reckless abandon. Um, I think if we just exercise a measure of care and, and, and know that there are greater factors at play, uh, like them trying to make a profit or harvesting our data or things like that. Um, if we, if we keep those things in our mind um, and, and try to engage wisely, it can be very good. And so I think, I think that would be my message of hope is it's not all bad. Um, I just think that we should probably act with a little bit more intentionality than we have historically with these platforms. And I think when you do that, great, beautiful images of the kingdom of God and our futures together in eternity uh, can be seen in conversations like this.